you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we have been two weeks in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and including this week, we have two more weeks uh, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, um, and then we'll have one more sermon in our series through the book of Ephesians. But for today, we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, verses verse 16 through the first part of verse 18. I wonder if you can think for a moment of a circumstance or of a situation where what you wear is uniquely important. Where you need certain clothes or specific equipment to survive. Um, I think it's been a while since he's done it, but um, I know if you talk to Ken that he has enjoyed scuba diving in the past. And if you, uh, he's not here today, but I'm sure you could find him at some point. And he could tell you from firsthand experience that if you go scuba diving, that the wetsuit that you're going to wear and the oxygen tank that's on your back uh, and even the watch that's on your wrist, that these are all vital pieces of equipment for your survival. We might also think about um, some more extreme forms of backpacking or mountain climbing, like people who climb Mount Everest or similar peaks. And if you decide to tackle one of these mountains, then the coat that you wear, the eye protection you have, the boots on your feet, your water bottle, not to mention all of the equipment that's in your backpack, these are not simply there for your comfort and your convenience, they are there for your survival. Now, I mentioned these different illustrations of wearing something that is uniquely important to your survival in the, in the hope that it will help us to wrap our minds a bit more around the illustration that Paul is giving us here in Ephesians 6, the illustration of putting on the armor of God as we fight against Satan and the unseen powers of darkness. Maybe some other illustrations are helpful because most, if not all of us, have not been in any kind of military battle, not to mention a first century battle like what Paul is alluding to here. Um, but it would have been a battle indeed. Nate and I were talking this past week just about how brutal that kind of warfare would have been, given that most of it would have been face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. It was violent and ruthless fighting that was happening and that Paul is thinking of. And in sharing this illustration, Paul is getting at the idea that there is someone out there that is seeking to defeat the follower of Jesus and the church as a whole. And if we're going to survive, we need to put on this this armor. Like a scuba diver or like a mountain climber, so too a soldier must put on necessary equipment or else defeat and death become inevitable. And yet the difference would be that the ocean and the mountains aren't coming after us, but Satan is. And therefore God's word says to us, as it did last week, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm. Maybe you're a little bit like me and you've gotten a bit too familiar with this illustration that Paul gives us. The armor that he's talking about is, in your mind, made a little bit more of flannel graph than it is of of metal. Uh, We might think of these elements for 
war, that there are things that we can take up if we want to, but we'll be fine if we leave them at home. But to do so would be like scuba diving without oxygen or climbing Everest without a coat. We all, we would die. And so too, we need to take up and put on this armor in the evil day, because if we don't, we will fall. We will become just another casualty, another person who walks away from Jesus, another person who sells his or her integrity for a moment of pleasure, another person who lives a life of hypocrisy filled with spiritual pride and a lack of love rather than holiness and graciousness. And our church too will become one more example of what it happens, of what happens when we claim to follow Jesus but fail to take seriously the call to walk in his ways and stand firm. So brothers and sisters, we have a real enemy. There's a real battle that is happening even though we can't see it with our physical eyes. Evil days are here, evil days are coming, and if we're not strong in the Lord, we will fall. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm. Last week we looked at the first three pieces of armor, uh, and today we're gonna look at the next three plus a bonus seventh uh, weapon because we need to put on the whole armor of God, not just the first three pieces. <laughs> and so uh, as we get ready to look at those, let's read again Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. This is what God's word says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the, in the, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, our first piece of armor that we see today, though it's the fourth one that Paul mentions, is found in verse 16, and it's the shield of faith. The shield of faith. The word for shield here comes from the word for door, and it probably refers to a larger shield that, of the two that a Roman soldier could use. This shield would have measured possibly four feet high by two to two and a half feet wide. So you get why they're using the word door for this shield. It's, it's quite a big shield, especially given that at that time, the average height of a man would have been about five feet. So kids, some of you might be four feet tall if you stand up and think about a shield as tall as you and then someone a foot taller lugging that shield around. That gives you an idea of what they're holding in front of them. The shield would have been made of, of wood and then covered with leather with kind of a metal trim at the top and at the bottom. 
Uh, aside from eventual hand-to-hand -hand combat, ancient warfare included the launching of various projectiles at the enemy. It sounds to me like anything they could get their hands on would be thrown at the other side. Things like rocks and lead weights and spears, as well as arrows, some of which would have been lit on fire. And because of that, these shields would be soaked in water before the battle so that they could extinguish some of these flaming darts. But the battles lasted for hours and the shield would eventually dry out and become susceptible to catching on fire. Well, despite the limitations, it's obvious that a, a shield would be vital for protection in battle. And Paul seems to get at how important a shield would have been when he introduces this piece of armor with the words, in all circumstances, in every circumstance, take up the shield of faith. Before I could ever have a credit card, I knew what you should do if you had an American Express card. Their slogan was, don't leave home without it probably, so you could buy all the stuff that you want. You always have your card with you. Um, but when it comes to the shield of a soldier, when it comes to the shield of faith for the Christian, we can't leave home without it. In fact, we need it at home as much as we need it anywhere, because many of the attacks that come at us are in the midst of our closest relationships. Satan is always ready to attack us. Therefore, in all circumstances, we must take up the shield of faith to protect us. The shield of faith serves to protect us from the flaming darts and the arrows of the evil one. And it doesn't just deflect them. What does it do? It extinguishes them. If we want to understand then how faith can do this, how can faith deflect and extinguish these flaming darts that are being thrown at us, we need to probably think about what kind of darts Satan might be throwing at us. And as we've seen in weeks past, it would seem that much of what Satan seeks to do is to make us doubt God, to doubt what he has said, to doubt who he is. When speaking about faith, we could also use words like trust or belief, the shield of trust, the shield of belief. So the, the darts that fly at us are a means of causing us to distrust God to question God's will, to, tr to, to question his, his ways. You've probably caught the theme, but in studying this passage, we found ourselves often going back to the Garden of Eden and to the original sin of, of Adam and Eve because Satan's tactics haven't changed and they're easy to spot in that scene. We see that, that he lies and he deceives, casting doubt on the goodness of God and calling Adam and Eve to distrust his goodness and his rules and his laws. When I think of that scene, a, a couple of questions from a children's catechism that we taught Elaine years ago comes to my mind. Those two questions go like this. What was the sin of our first parents? And the answer is eating the forbidden fruit. And the next question is the one I love. Why did Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit? I don't know that I'd ever thought about that. Why did they do it? And the answer is because they did not believe what God had said. Why did they eat it? Because they did not believe what God had said. The reason Adam and Eve rebelled against God and listened to Satan was unbelief. In fact, at the root of nearly, if not every sin, is unbelief and a lack of faith. We do not believe what God says, whether we think what he forbids will actually bring us joy or that what he calls us to in his will will actually make us 
miserable or any other lie that we might believe. We don't trust him. We imagine that what we long for is found outside of him. We don't believe that he alone can satisfy our souls. John Piper says this, the failure of the heart to be confident in the promises of God and to rejoice and find pleasure in his provision for the future is the root and essence of all sin. Unbelief is what mainly displeases God in every sinful act. As Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the darts thrown at us every day are intended to make us doubt and to question and to disbelieve who God is and the goodness of his ways. And so Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.12 that we are to fight the good fight of faith. We must fight for faith and we must fight with faith so that we can extinguish the foolishness of the lies that Satan is telling us. We have to fight against these things. We have to fight the jealousy that arises when we see what others have. And we need to instead trust that God has given us exactly what we need. We need to fight the envy that we have, believing instead that godliness with contentment is great gain. We need to fight lust with faith, holding on to the goodness of God's design for relationships and for sexuality. We fight anger with faith, believing that God is in control, that he's working all things together for good, even when those things really make us mad. We must fight fear and worry with faith, trusting that God cares for us even more than he cares for the birds whom he feeds every day without fail. In all circumstances, we must take up the shield of faith. As we go through our days and we're tempted or discouraged or we're just uniquely aware of the fight that's around us, we might ask our hearts questions. Questions like, what am I believing that's not true in this moment? What about God's character am I doubting that's causing me to to be tempted in this way? What part of God's plan or God's will or God's law am I questioning? And instead, how can I trust him? How can I have faith to deflect and extinguish the darts that are being hurled at me? We might also ask one another these kinds of questions. As we share our struggles, we could say things like, what are you believing that's not true? What about God's character are you doubting? And as we think about asking each other these questions, the the shield of faith again becomes a reminder of the corporate nature of this armor. And the shield is uniquely a, a reminder of that because a group of soldiers would often link their shields together to form a wall of sorts. And even as some in the front would form this wall, others in the back would lift their shields above their heads. And as they all stood very close together, they'd form this almost shell of sorts that would protect all of them from the arrows of the enemy. And so too, our faith together helps us stand firm. Your faith gives me strength to stand. And in turn, my faith gives you strength to stand. I'm reminded of the story in the Gospels of the man who was paralyzed. You'll remember that it was his friends who brought him to Jesus and his friends who would not give up when they found that the place where Jesus was already, where Jesus was, was already busting at the seams with people such that they couldn't get in. So what did they do? 
climbed up on the roof and they lowered their friend down in front of Jesus. And we're told there in the Gospels that when Jesus saw their faith, he forgave and healed the man. I love that. Their faith. Because sometimes we need the faith of others to bolster our faith. And sometimes I just need you to believe for me because I can't get to that place. I need to see you standing firm in the midst of difficulty so that I can keep my footing for just a little bit longer. Well, in addition to the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness, and the shield of faith that we take up in all circumstances, we are to put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. A helmet is not a piece of armor that probably needs much explanation. In fact, helmets are something we're pretty familiar with. Maybe you've worn a a hard hat in a construction zone or you played football at some time and you wore a helmet. Many of us have worn a helmet while riding our bicycles or while skateboarding. We understand the value of protecting our heads and the brain that's inside them. And the spiritual helmet that protects our heads, the spiritual helmet that we are to wear is salvation. Now, we know that Paul is speaking to Christians, so we might ask if the helmet of salvation is something that we put on, or is it something that we have already put on? We usually think of salvation as a a moment in, in time. It's the moment when we cross from death to life. And it happens as we turn from sin and we trust in Christ, as we move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light where Jesus is king. We are saved as we place our hope of forgiveness and our hope for eternal life and the fact that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, that he's risen from death such that he can raise us from the dead. And we affirm that our hope of life everlasting is in the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. Salvation in those terms then is not something that we can take off and put on later. If Christ has saved us, we are his forever. And yet while there is a moment in time in which we cross from from death to life, that moment also shapes the rest of our days. The truth that we have been saved from the wrath of God and the penalty of sin protects us. And it gives us strength to fight in the battles that we fight. This, This past reality helps us to stand in the present. And so the helmet of salvation would at least in part have to do with us keeping the truth of what Christ has done in saving us always before our eyes, reminding ourselves to remember that we are in Christ, that our lives are to be ruled by him and by him alone. This past reality of salvation, though, also points us not just to the present, but also to the future. Consider again these parallel verses from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 8 through 11 that, that Mark read earlier. It says there, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do you see the future aspect of salvation that Paul is bringing out there? And so therefore, it would seem that that hope is a key aspect of the helmet of salvation. 
if we are truly in Christ, saved by his righteous life, by his atoning death, by his glorious resurrection, then we can never fall away from him. And yet, and yet we will often lose hope in this world. We can become weary in this battle. We can wonder if the battle's ever going to end. We're called to stand. Sometimes we're just filled with despair. And rather than stand, we just like to lay down and give up. Or sometimes we just get distracted. We get distracted by the world. Standing feels really hard. I'd rather just go with the flow than stand against the tide. You know what they say, if you can't beat them, join them. It feels tempting sometimes. So what's going to keep us standing firm? What's going to keep us from just not giving up? What's going to help us persevere to the end? Hope. Hope of full salvation. Hope that what we experience now in part, we will experience completely in the future. The hope that the real defeat of Satan that happened through Christ will be complete when Jesus returns to take us to himself. So we don't have to join them because we will beat them because we are joined to Christ. When you have no hope of victory, it's really easy to give up. That's true in war. Think about some of the Old Testament examples. You remember the, I think it's at the battle of, I never know how to pronounce it, A-I, I, however you say it, where they turn and see that, that their village is being ransacked and they just lose heart completely. That's true though if you're playing a soccer game or playing a football game and you're down by way too much and you just think, I give up, I don't want to play anymore. Or you're playing a board game and someone's just, taking all your pieces, and you say, I don't even want to play anymore. If you think there's no way to win, it's hard to keep playing. But for the, for the Christian, for the church, we already know who wins. If it looks like we're losing the battle, even if it looks like we're going to die in this world, we know that victory will come in the end. So we wear the helmet of salvation so that we can stand. Stand in what Christ has done and stand in the certain hope of what he will do for us. Put on the helmet of salvation. And the sixth piece of armor we take up is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. It's the only offensive weapon that we're given in this armor. And it reminds us that the battle we fight is more like hand-to-hand combat than anything else. Yes, we deflect and we extinguish the areas of, arrows of Satan often, but there are times when he is so close that we have to strike with the sword of the Spirit. There's really no question about what the sword is here. It's said to be the sword of the Spirit, specifically then stated to be the Word of God. This sword that we are given is the Spirit-inspired, God-breathed words of Scripture. It's said that the pen is mightier than the sword. And in that sense, the, the, in the sense that, that words have more power than physical weapons. But I think Paul might say the words of Scripture that have been penned for us are a sword. <laughs> They're not just mightier than the sword. They, in fact, are one. John Stott points to the use of the sword of the Spirit in, 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 in two ways. First, resisting temptation. 
and second, evangelism. There's probably more, but let's just think about those two uh, for today. Resisting temptation and evangelism. With regard to resisting temptation, Jesus, of course, is our clearest and our best example, as he is in all things. Uh, The gospel writers take us into the moment when Satan tempted Jesus, and we see him disarming and defeating the lies and the wiles of the devil. How? Through the words of Scripture found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he models for us what it looks like to take up the sword of the Spirit to defeat Satan. He shows us too, even in the Garden of Gethsemane that we, read, that we just sang about, how even when we're overwhelmed, we can trust the truth that God has revealed to us. We might even say that the, the Word of God in some way transforms all of our defensive pieces of armor into offensive weapons that we are able to fight against the lies and the accusations of Satan and the powers of darkness with the the truth of the Bible, truth that we wrap around us through familiarity with the Scriptures, truth that reminds us of Christ's righteousness given to us so when accusations come, we can use the, the truth about the righteousness we have in Christ like a weapon, the truth of the hope of salvation found in the pages of Scripture so that when we're discouraged, we can use those, those words of hope to fight off discouragement and so on. I wonder, do we find ourselves falling prey to the temptations of Satan, unable to resist them? If that's true, then I think we need to consider how well we are holding on to the sword of the Spirit. Uh, Dr. Joel has often shared with me the illustration of a, of a hand where the the different fingers represent ways that we uh, use God's word, things like, like hearing God's word or reading the Bible or meditating on the scriptures or studying the scriptures or memorizing the scriptures. And it's, it's as we fill our lives with each of these practices that then we're able to hold firmly to the sword of the spirit and use it in the battles that we face. Uh, To that end, we also fill our services with scripture and with songs that convey the truth of the gospel so that these realities can ring in our ears throughout the week. We've begun repeating our assurances of forgiveness for three months at a time. Why? So that those those words would not only bring comfort on Sunday, but also so that when we're overwhelmed by our sin throughout the week, that they would come to our minds. And of course, we ground our, our sermons in the scriptures because we know that's where the power is for us to stand firm. You know, the sword of the Spirit, too, is unique, not just in fighting temptation, that we can fight our own temptation, but that our our brothers and sisters in Christ can also help us fight temptation. That when we are tempted, that they can bring the the words of 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 God to us to help us fight against the lies. And in fact, there's a sense in which our brothers and sisters in Christ can pierce our own hearts with the convicting words of Scripture's of the, of, of the truth of Scripture. We should often be reminding one another of the truth of the Bible so that we can stand firm together, which then takes us into the fact that the sword is to be used in evangelism. On the day of Pentecost, as Peter stood before the crowd and called them to repentance and faith in Jesus, we're told in Acts 2.37 that many in the crowd were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And that cutting and conviction that they experienced was an evidence of the truth of Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. But the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the hearts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so as we share the gospel with others, we should be bold to speak the truth of God's word, knowing that even the hardest of hearts can be pierced and healed by the scriptures, that it's God's word that can bring conviction of sin. It's God's word that can convince people of his love for them in Christ. And so the illustration of the armor of God seems to end with the sword of the spirit, and yet, and yet Paul moves straight into prayer, doesn't he? And he connects the practice of prayer to this call to stand firm in the armor of God. So let's, let's talk about prayer. I think we could say that prayer is a weapon in the fight against Satan and the forces of darkness in that it's a means of us calling on God for help. Spurgeon said that prayer is the slender nerve that moves the omnipotent arm of God. Sounds like a pretty powerful weapon to use if you think about it. John Piper draws on modern day war imagery when he talks about the place of prayer in our fight against Satan. This is what he says. God has given us prayer not as an intercom for increased convenience in our secluded cottages, but as a walkie-talkie connecting the general's headquarters with the transportation line and the field hospital and the frontline artillery. Prayer is not a bell to call the servants to satisfy some desire we happen to feel. It is a battlefield transmitter for staying in touch with the general. It's a good way to think about prayer, especially as we think about it in the midst of the fight that we face each day. Prayer may not, in fact, be a specific piece of armor listed here because prayer is to pervade and empower every piece of armor that we have. It's to be done in the Spirit, which in some ways links it to the the sword of the Spirit. And so the word and prayer are the weapons that we are given and we are to pray as the Spirit prompts and guides us knowing also that the Spirit himself is interceding for us. As we look at the text, there's four all statements regarding prayer that we could spend a whole sermon talking about. (laughs) But uh, we see here that we're to pray in four different ways. We're to pray at all times with all prayer and supplication with all perseverance, and for all the saints. Rapid fire, let's go through those four, okay, and then we'll be done. (laughs) At all times, the battle is always raging, therefore prayer is always appropriate. It's not something that we use only at the last minute, rather it's something that we are always engaged in. In the words of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we pray without ceasing. Next, we're to pray with all prayer and supplication. Pray with all prayer and supplication. Sounds a little redundant, doesn't it? I think this would seem to indicate all of the different ways that we are to pray. In our fight against Satan, we pray prayers of praise. We pray prayers of confession. We pray prayers of thanksgiving. We pray prayers of intercession. We pray in the morning. We pray in the afternoon. We pray in the evening. We pray one-sentence prayers. We pray hour-long prayers. We set aside days for fasting and prayer. We pray in our closets. We pray with our spouses. We pray around the dinner table. We pray as we gather on Sundays. If we're going to stand, we need to pray in all kinds of ways, in all forms of prayer, in all postures of prayer, every moment that we can find. 
like an army that's going to use any and every tactic that they can come up with to defeat the enemy, so too we will pray in any way that we can come up with so that we will stand. So we pray at all times with all, supplica- with all prayer and supplication. Third, with all perseverance. We persevere in prayer. Our past prayer life is not sufficient for the present. The zeal of our youth is not enough for our middle age and our old age. We must continue to pray. And on the evil day, we can't let our guard down. We must always be entrusting ourselves to the Lord. And fourth, we pray for all the saints. We'll see a very specific application of this next Sunday on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, but how appropriate that we would end our meditation on the armor of God with a, re- with a reminder of the fact that we are fighting to stand together, that we're doing this with one another, that the armor that we are putting on is corporate as well as individual in nature. Because my hope isn't just that I'm gonna stand, My hope isn't that I'm just going to survive and I'm going to persevere in faith. My hope is that you do. As a body of Christ, my hope is that everyone who professes Christ would stand firm. And I can't do anything to help you stand firm. I can't do anything greater to help you stand firm than to pray for you. And so we pray for one another. We pray for the church worldwide, knowing that our enemy is strong, but also knowing that our God is is stronger. So what a good reminder that Paul has given us that this battle is real, whether we see it with our eyes or not. If we fail to put on the armor of God individually, if we fail to put it on as a church, we will fall. But by God's grace, dressed in his armor, we can stand. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm. And remember this, this is the armor of Jesus that he's now giving to us. And so we know that while we must stand firm, we can can rest in the fact that God's own arm has brought him salvation through Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper in a moment, we are affirming that our hope of standing firm is finally found where? It's found in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that he has defeated death and hell for us by going through them and coming out on the other side victorious. And so the bread and the cup remind us that Satan has been and will be defeated, that Christ has come for us and he will come again for us. If your hope of salvation is found in Christ alone, then we would invite you to take this meal with us. We also ask that you have been baptized as an announcement of that faith and as the first step of obedience to Christ. We'll take this um, in a moment. Uh, Andrea, would you help me pass when it's time? Uh, But before we take this meal, let's take a moment of silence and we'll prepare our, our hearts and then we will pray together and we'll pass the, the bread and the cup. But let's take a moment of silence to allow God's word to sink into our souls and to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together.
Father, we long to stand firm in this battle. And we thank you that that our hope of doing so is not rooted in us and in our strength, but it's rooted in what Christ has done. That in dying, he has defeated death. That in taking our sin upon himself, he has made it possible for all of our sins to be taken away. That in being made a curse, Lord, we can know the blessing that you have accomplished for us. And so we're reminded now as we take this bread and this cup of just what it costs for our salvation to be accomplished. And we ask that you would help us to remember Christ well. Ask all this in his name. Amen.